just want to uh, express uh, my gratitude, our gratitude, our family's gratitude uh, to you guys um, for the uh, unceasing encouragement, support uh, from elders to folks calling us to pray, uh, to partnering with us in the ministry. Um, We feel incredibly blessed uh, to be here in Dallas and incredibly blessed uh, to be stepping into ministry that a lot of you all have already been very active in for a number of years, uh, ministering to refugee families, refugee neighbors uh, who have found their way here to Dallas. Um, so thank you. It's really a, an honor to be able to, uh, to open God's Word and just to worship with you. So uh, the beginning of December, about a month ago, uh, I was really excited because um, one of my favorite artists, uh, musicians, had released a Christmas album. And uh, are, there, are there any Josh Garrels fans here? Look, man, that's awesome. Okay, you guys can back me up on this. Uh, it's an amazing album. But this one song in particular uh, jumped out at me and just uh, kind of seized my attention the whole Advent season. And, and the name of the song is called O Day of Peace. And O Day of Peace is an adaptation of Isaiah chapter 11, uh, which is a prophecy all about uh, the coming king who's going to inaugurate a a reign, a royal and and glorious kingdom. That's uh, that's what the song is about. Uh, The passage, if you're familiar with it, uh, Isaiah 11, it's actually a bit surreal. Uh, It talks about wolves dwelling with lambs and beasts uh, dwelling with, uh, with cattle, uh, children playing over cobra's holes, and enemies learning how to love each other. It's an amazing passage. And the core idea of it really is that, that the Messiah King, the Anointed One, is going to come, and he's going to open up this, this, this long-for world, this hope of peace that humanity has within itself, it's going to be realized. It's going to be fulfilled when the Messiah comes. Now, if you listen to this song, I, I, I bet this is going to happen to you. This is what happened to me. I'm listening to this song, and it just, it just woke me up. It was so beautiful. The, the music is beautiful. It's pretty spare itself. But, but the lyrics were so bold. They are so extravagant. The, the song just woke me up, and I realized that uh, this artist is singing, not with this kind of flimsy, yeah, I believe that things are going to get better when Jesus comes back, but this, this from his core, uh, conviction that there is a glorious future coming. And, and as I've, I've thought about that song, as I realize uh, my own, some of my own deficit, my own spiritual deficit, I realize I would be probably one of the first people to say, Yeah, I believe Jesus is going to come back. I believe that cognitively. But I realize when I listen to that song that I don't live with the corresponding longing that 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 kind of belief ought to generate. And so my prayer today and my hope really uh, this whole year is that um, this passage, Isaiah 61, uh, would do to us what that song did to me. Uh, That it would help us to see this, this luminous glorious coming kingdom uh, that God is building even now. Uh, 
And he's going to continue to build it until Christ returns. So I want to ask you, as, as you listen to the passage, ask yourself, do I believe this? Do I believe what is being spoken of here? And then go even further and ask yourself, do I long for this? So um, the passage is printed on your bulletin, Isaiah 61, 1 to 11. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. And strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and vine dressers, but you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations, and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them, that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as garden as a garden grows, causes what's sown in it to sprout up. So the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we hear these words and um, they come to us like a shot across the bow. Father, we pray that you would be present with us. We pray that you would enable us through your spirit to understand Uh, what you're saying, what you said to your people millennia ago, and what you're saying to us now. God, we pray that you would give us uh, this this hope, this longing for your kingdom. So Lord, would you do that? God, we pray this uh, because it's what you have told us to do. Lord, thank you, and we pray expectantly in your name. Amen. So, um, this passage... uh, towards the end of the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 61. It's all about God's promise to establish a glorious new kingdom. That's the main idea of what this this chapter is all about. God is going to establish a glorious new kingdom. Now, this this restored kingdom, uh, we learn in the passage, it's going to be 
inaugurated by a great person, a great redeemer. And the promises of this passage really focus on uh, not so much of the surrounding world and its transformation, although it's there, but the the real focus of this passage is how God, uh, through this redeemer, is going to bring his kingdom through the transformation of his people, through the renewal of his people. His people, us, uh, the people who, who have said uh, they follow God, we are the ones who are the objects of God's renewal, of, of this great restoration. And the challenge uh, that's before us, particularly at the start of a new year, uh, when we're uh, thinking about the future, we're thinking about it maybe in a heightened way, uh, making goals for ourselves, thinking about what we want 2017 to be like, the challenge for us in our complex times is, is actually the ability to believe that this kingdom, which is spoken of here, is the most uh, core reality that we live in. This is more real to us uh, than, our, than our lives and our experiences, the ups and downs of our days. This kingdom is what we exist in. Now, Isaiah 61 is really aiming to convince us that this is our reality, and it's going to do that in three particular ways. I only have two um, in, the, uh, in the outline that's before you, but, uh, but Isaiah does three things. Isaiah 61 does three things for us. It, it exposes our misplaced hopes, and then it, and then it reveals a messianic agenda, and then finally, it shows us this unexpected transformation. That's what, that's what we're going to dig into as we, as we look at this passage. And first, we really need to see, we really need to feel how uh, this passage exposes us in our misplaced hopes. Uh, the, the confession uh, we, we prayed together uh, really did a fantastic job of, of naming uh, the ways that we uh, exist for our own, with our, according to our own desires, uh, living for our own glory. Uh, we're, we uh, live, and we've already confessed our misplaced hopes. But, but let's look at it in the passage. Now, let me set the stage a little bit for you uh, and remind you, probably some of you saw this, uh, but back in November, uh, Oxford Dictionaries uh, did something they do every year. They, uh, they unveiled their word of the year. And uh, I'm sure some of you probably saw this or heard about it, but uh, the word of the year, according to Oxford Dictionaries, for 2016, the word of the year was post-truth. Did you hear this? Post-truth. Um, the ra- here's the rationale they gave for naming post-truth, the word of the year, for 2016. Uh, every year... Oxford Dictionaries reviews candidates for Word of the Year, and they choose the one that captures the mood and the ethos or the preoccupations of that particular year. Now, according to Oxford's data, uh, the use of post-truth increased some 2,000% compared to 2015. The the word was in use in 2015, but it it really spiked uh, just this last year, and it especially spiked after uh, the, the U.K. vote to leave uh, the EU, uh, the Brexit vote. And, and then there was another big spike in the summer after President-elect Trump 
uh, secure the Republican nomination. That's, that was kind of in the air um, all year long. And what's interesting about it is that Oxford is lamenting the fact, and many public voices since then have lamented the fact, that, that we live in a post-truth era, uh, an era when it, it, it seems like truth is irrelevant. Oxford's president even went so far to say that I wouldn't be surprised if post-truth became one of the defining words of our time. Well, the historical backdrop to Isaiah 61 makes no mistake. There's no doubt about the fact that that post-truth is one of the defining words of Isaiah's time. You might not know that um, just based on this passage we just read together, uh, but the lead-up in the the chapters immediately before Isaiah 61 uh, make it very clear that that while we have this glorious vision, the, the landscape and the condition of God's people is really disturbing. Chapters 57 uh, all the way to 59 uh, really show God giving Israel this uh, strong rebuke for uh, being a post-truth people. Um, And they have a particular post-truth problem, and it's this misplaced hope. If you, um, if you go and you open up the book of Isaiah and you just read the first chapter, you'll see that in the very first chapter. And it, and it, it runs throughout the whole book, throughout the, all 66 chapters of the book of, of Isaiah. Uh, but the question of misplaced hope, uh, whether God's people are going to put their, their ultimate devotion uh, in, in God, whether they're going to give that devotion to Yahweh, it really comes to the fore in the last ten chapters of this book. And, and that's where we see um, Israel in this very unique predicament, this very unique time in the, in the history of Israel, because Isaiah is, is predicting, he's foreseeing a time when, um, when, when the exiles, God's people sent away to, to captivity in Babylon, the exiles will repent, they'll, they'll return to uh, loving and following their God, and, and they, they, do in fact, they do in fact come back into the land. God does in fact uh, bring his people back. His, his exiles return. It's this incredible, another incredible Exodus story. But once the people get back in the land, something is still wrong. The exodus hasn't really fully worked. Um, The deliverance isn't deep enough. Israel uh, falls back into into old sin patterns, into old ways. They have uh, what you could call rebellion relapse. They're they're like addicts uh, returning to the the old, tired, misplaced hopes uh, of worshiping the gods of the nations around them, of, of relying on their own strength, making foreign uh, alliances uh, in, in direct contradiction to God's, to God's direction. They, 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 they turn to their misplaced hopes as their ultimate source of, uh, of salvation. And Israel actually admits this problem uh, in, at the end of Isaiah 59. Listen to what they say. Our transgressions are with us. We know our iniquities. We deny Yahweh 
and turn back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt. Justice is turned back, and righteousness stands far away, for truth has stumbled in the public squares, and uprightness cannot enter. We all growl like bears. A very vivid picture. We all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. We hope for salvation, but it is far from us. It is a bleak picture at the end of Isaiah. Following the prediction of of this great servant of God who's going to redeem his people. How on earth does that happen? Denial, rejection, revolt, oppression, injustice, dejection. Israel's post-truth problem um, creates a post-just society. Now, here's, here's the connection for us, and it, it's sobering. Um, these people that, that God is indicting here, these people are the returned exiles. They're the ones who ostensibly uh, returned and repented while they were in exile. And yet, the cataclysmic pain of that exile and all that they went through, um, they, they come back into the land, and here they are still captive still captive to sin, these poor old Israelites. And it's easy to look back on uh, those folks, the Israelites, and, and criticize them. But really, what begins to happen if you, if you read uh, the flow of Isaiah is you realize that, that Israel's misplaced hopes are the same ones that we live with. Uh, these, these idol addicts are, are really us. Isaiah forces us, especially in this chapter, um, in, in chapter 61, he, it, he forces us to ask this question, what do we put our ultimate future hope in? Is it the kingdom of God that's described here? Now, I want to get uh, personal with you and um, tell you that uh, it's been an interesting five months since my wife and I moved here from Boston uh, while I was back uh, living in New England uh, there was another pastor friend, and, 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 um, and he and I shared this, uh, this kind of this secret love of uh, something. I know you all are going to be very, very familiar with, uh, but there, we loved the show Fixer Upper. Um, I'm sure that comes as a shock to you, uh, but, but you know what? People in Boston are paying attention uh, to, to Fixer Upper. When, when we realized that the Lord was calling us uh, to come here, uh, I'm I'm thinking, well, this is just fantastic. I'm moving to the land of Chip and Jojo. This is going to be great. Let's do this. Um, we're going to find a house. We're going to... here's, what's, here's what's been happening with me over the last five months. I've been exposed in my misplaced hope of finding the perfect house. Uh, we're living with our in-laws still. And um, at the beginning of December, uh, we thought we had found... Uh, this, this perfect house, it was going to be maybe a little bit of a fixer-upper, and um, we made the offer, and initially it wasn't accepted, and there was some negotiating, and then they came back and surprised us and said, yes, we agreed on a price, we had a, a, a close date, and uh, I even told the staff of, of For the Nations, and we celebrated together, we've got a house, all right, this is moving forward. And then, the, you know what happened? The next day, got, they got back to us and said, Deals off, we're, we're going with another buyer. And we were crushed. 
we were crushed. I still am crushed. Um, this is not how the script is supposed to play out. Not how the script is supposed to play out at all. Well, here's what happened even this week. I was called out for my own sin, and of all places, the New York Times. I don't know if you uh, read uh, David Brooks' column on Friday. It's called The Home Buying Decision. Listen to what he says. I've been thinking about the big decisions in life, how people choose careers, colleges, spouses, towns. And of all those decisions, buying a home definitely ranks with the most difficult. People generally don't select a house, and you guys can, I'm sure, many of you can affirm this. They fall in love with it. When people fall in love with a house, they aren't really falling in love with the walls or the roof. They're falling in love with a beautiful vision of their future lives. You feel bereft at the thought of not having it. You're just buying an object, but your heart is suddenly on the line. Man, pegged by the New York Times. It's been alarming to me uh, over these, over these fa- past few months. We moved here. To, we're, we're, we were planting a church for refugees. We have this vision of we want to we see God's kingdom come and establish. But it's been very sobering to look at my own heart and to realize just how powerful the lure of misplaced hopes are. My own ongoing captivity to sin. Isaiah, especially this chapter, gives us the space to ask, what's your heart on the line for right now? What is uh, the beautiful vision of your future life that is animating you, that's driving you, that might be stealing your love and your longing away from its proper place. Well, our misplaced hopes, they need to be exposed. They need to be outed so that we can be delivered from them. That's what grace does. And, and now, before us in, in uh, the rest of this chapter, Isaiah 61, it, he, he lifts our gaze to help us see uh, the revelation of the messianic hope, the messianic agenda. So, uh, look with me at that, at that first verse. Isaiah 61 uh, begins this way. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. And you've heard it several times through the service already. That, that word anointed in, in Isaiah and throughout um, the Old Testament, it's synonymous with Messiah. It mean, it's literally translated Messiah. It means king. It means the coming promised king uh, from the line of David who's going to sit on a throne that, that will, and his kingdom will endure forever. Isaiah 61 is, is focused. It doesn't say king specifically in the passage, but it's, it's all about this king. It's all about this messianic agenda. But what's this coming king going to do? Uh, you see in, in verses, the, the rest of verse 1 and through the end of verse 3, uh, this incredible agenda. Uh, it's really the heart of, of the messianic hope. And you see seven bold claims that are, that are made and laid out before us. First, he's going to bring good news to the poor. The, mess, the, the Messiah, the King of Israel, is going to bring good news to the poor. He's going to bind up, which means he's going to heal the brokenhearted. Soul healing. He's come to proclaim liberty to the captives, the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Verse 2, he's come to proclaim 
the year of the Lord's favor, the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn. Verse 3, to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. And the reason he's going to do all this is that in order that they may be called oaks of righteousness, that they may be called the planting of the Lord, in order that he might be glorified. This is the messianic agenda. And it it comes 700 years before Christ ever shows up on the scene. This is is shrouded in mystery, for sure. Um, Israel lived with, with this ambiguity. What is this? Who is this person going to be? I mean, these are bold claims. You could, we've just come through an election season when everyone is uh, trotting out their, their, their vision of progress and uh, an agenda for getting that done. But, but no one, even the greatest leaders in history, no one would be so bold to, to proclaim that, that this is their agenda. Who's, who could do something like this? Who could bring a kingdom like this? Well, this mystery is what fueled Israel's longing as they waited for the Messiah to come. The God's people waited for, for a messianic figure to, to do this, to bring this about. It's, it's a beautiful picture of transformation, and we're going to get to that later on. But what's especially interesting about this passage is that this is the very passage that in Luke's gospel, Jesus opens up his own public ministry with. Jesus begins his agenda of salvation with this message, with this claim. Uh, We heard it read earlier. He told this to his hometown. He, He read these verses to his own hometown church, the people who knew him when he was a kid, uh, who they knew where he lived, they knew where he, where he grew up. And he said to them, Today, this scripture in Isaiah is fulfilled in your hearing. And what's fascinating about that interchange is uh, to see the boldness of the claim that Jesus is making, but it's also to see the people's reaction to it. It's to see that the people, it says, they were initially amazed when they heard these words. They had heard the reports about him in Capernaum. He'd been doing amazing things. In fact, they, when they actually paused to think about it, there were strange stories about the events in this guy's life going all the way back to his birth. But this is Joseph's son. This is the car- He's the carpenter, right? He's talking about fulfilling this, this bold vision, this agenda. And so Jesus' own neighbors in Nazareth we're forced with this question. It's the same one that we're faced with. It's a choice. Will we accept the claims or will we reject them? Can we really place our greatest hope in this man? Can you? Can you do that today? Well, Jesus intercepts their doubt and he intercepts ours by uh, making these two, two obscure references to some other prophets, Elijah and Elisha, and uh, two events that they did to bring God's favor and his love to people who were outside of the people of God, to Gentiles, to, to a widow in Lebanon, and to a, a general from Syria. It's, 
essentially Jesus is saying, listen, if you want to know whether or not you can put your ultimate hope in me, here's the, here's the best proof I can give you. Look at the way that God has shown his love to the outsider. Look at the way that God has poured out his love to the undeserving, to the one who, had been, who everybody else had overlooked. The widow and, and, and the leper, those are the people that, that Jesus references here. That's, that's who God's favor is for. And that, it's, it, his, his illusion is not lost on his audience there in Nazareth. They're scandalized by this. They're scandalized that, that Jesus could be talking about the, the special covenant love of God going to the nations, to the Gentiles. But that's the pattern that Jesus is beginning to replicate over and over again in his public ministry. It's the same pattern, God's love moving to the outsider, that we see in Peter and Philip and Thomas and in the Jerusalem Council and in Paul and in Barnabas and in the entire New Testament. God's love has always been intended to move out. And so this messianic agenda and the hope that comes with it is clarified and fulfilled in the person of Jesus. Now, the Messiah is just starting to get warmed up here in our passage. Now he's going to show us uh, this incredible, unexpected transformation of what, what his agenda actually brings to the world. And if you play your cards right, uh, I believe Cameron Mullins is preaching next week. Tell him you want to hear uh, Isaiah 62, and, and maybe he can, he can keep pressing into what this transformation looks like. But, but what I really want to focus on with you all in the remainder of the time we have is, is what this transformation looks like for God's people. And, uh, and you really see that brought out most powerfully in verses 4 to 8. Um, verse 4 says that God's people shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities and the devastations of many generations. Now, remember, this is, these, these are the exiles, people who are just earlier uh, criticized for causing devastation back in their own land. They're in the, their post-truth reality leading to a post-just society, is they're being excoriated for it. But now, Isaiah says they will be building up the ancient ruins, that they'll be renewing the devastations of many generations. And strangers will see this, and they're going to come to Israel. They're going to join themselves. They're going to be included in the people of God. Strangers shall stand and tend your flocks. Foreigners shall be your plowmen and your vine dressers. But you shall be called the priests of the Lord. They shall speak of you as the ministers of our God. You shall eat the wealth of the nations, and in their glory you shall boast. It's, it's, it's a picture of God's people transformed from having the misplaced hopes and the accompanying injustice that follows in the, in the social network around them. And now they are peacemakers. Now they're rebuilders, renewers. And, and, and as the rest of the nations watch God's covenant people do this, it's utterly compelling they're, they're, they're actually pointing people, like priests, to, to the one true living God. Instead, in verse 7, instead of your shame, 
the shame from the earlier passages. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. And therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. How do, how do exiles battling with the same old sin patterns, how do um, good-intentioned disciples today who want to follow God with our whole hearts, mind, soul, and strength, how do we find this everlasting joy? How does, it, how does God bring it to us? Messianic agenda. But, but verse 8 is, is really the climax of the passage. I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and long. I will faithfully give rebels, them, their, their recompense. What's, what is their due? What is the due for, for people who, have, who wander and, and, and wander and wander and wander again? What's the recompense? I will make an everlasting covenant with them. That is shocking. That is shocking that God would say that to rebellious, hard-hearted people like, like me <laughs> in my ongoing uh, captivity to, to idols. That's what God says to us today. I hate robbery and wrong. I hate injustice. But I'm, I'm going to give them their due. And I'm going to make an everlasting covenant with them? How on earth is he going to do that? It's, it's by covering us. As it says, covering us um, in, in verse 10. Clothing us with the garments of salvation. Covering us with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and a bride adorns herself with her jewels. It's a picture of the Messiah coming and displacing our rebellion. Uh, the, the, the ultimate insider, Jesus, the second member of the Trinity, emptying himself, not counting his privileges, something to be clung to, but, but coming to us in order to bring us in. We are the exiles. And God, through Christ, is bringing His people back to Himself. Undeserved favor. Undeserved mercy. This is great news that that people who struggle with the captivity to the same old misplaced hopes have a real, genuine Redeemer who can deliver us from that captivity. This is what Christ did when He died on the cross. The people in, in Nazareth, tried, they tried to kill him. They took him to the edge of the cliff, and they're ready to, to push him over to his death. But his time wasn't to come yet. He still had to bring this message of, of a new glorious kingdom. Comprehensive transformation. Comprehensive new life. The, the dead coming to life. This is what Jesus brings. It's, what he, it's the reign that he inaugurates, and it's the reign which is ongoing even now. The nations, as, as this passage ends, the nations will see it. The nations will see it, and they will praise God for it. New sprouts. The earth brings forth new sprouts, and like a garden that causes what's sown to sprout up. This hope has led to an an unbelievable transformation. New sprouts before all the nations. It's a picture of God's grace transforming the lives of His people, 
transforming the, the, the world that's around them, and, and it's glorious. And do you long for it? Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, thank you for coming to us, for condescending, uh, for entering into our chaos, uh, entering into our rebellion, knowing the cost that it would that it would bring to you. God, we praise you for the fact that you anticipate our every rebellion, that you know how prone our hearts are to wander away from you, and yet, God, you have made it possible through sending your Son, through His giving His life as a ransom for many, making us sons, making us your children, and and transforming us and the world that we live in. God, we long to see more of this. I pray, Lord, for my brothers and sisters here, for, uh, for all who call on the name of Christ, that we would live with this, this longing, long, this longing to see your kingdom worked out in our midst. God, would you enable us to see our lives as belonging to you? Would you enable us to turn from uh, all the false gods that we worship? And would you enable us to see the glory of your son, Jesus? In his name we pray all these things. Amen.